This morning's reading is from Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless before, because our fields and vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury for, from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, for, but, letting, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, but we will not demand, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made, and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Arxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came, from, came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were, prepa were prepared for me and every 10 days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor.
because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favour, oh my, oh my God, for all I have done for these people. Thank you very much for reading for me, reading for us all. Ruth, uh, can people hear me okay? Yes? No, maybe? Excellent. Uh, wonderful to see some new faces uh, with us this morning. Wonderful to see some faces we haven't seen for a very long time. Uh, it's great to be back in God's Word. I'm going to do a little bit of a recap of where we are in the book of Nehemiah. If you've got a Bible with you, it'd be really helpful to keep that open. If you open up your uh, Bibles in Nehemiah, you'll find it's in roughly the middle of the Old Testament. If you scroll through the list of books in your Bible app, you'll see it's roughly in the middle of the Old Testament. However, as we saw back in week one, the book of Nehemiah, the events in Nehemiah, actually take place at the very end of the Old Testament. We're not in the middle of the Old Testament story. We're at the very end of the Old Testament story. Nothing happens after the events of Nehemiah until John the Baptist is born in the history of God's people in the Bible. And so because Nehemiah is at the end of the Old Testament, well, that means that all of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all those books have already been written. And in those prophets' books, we find great promises. Promises that God is going to restore the nation of Israel. Promises that God is going to rebuild the temple. Promises that a Messiah is coming. God's anointed, appointed king is coming. And this book of Nehemiah, though it's in the middle of our Bibles, covers the end of the Old Testament story. And in those stories, we find what appears to be the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises. You might remember we saw that Nehemiah was originally the second half of one book. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book, not two. And in that book, Ezra and Nehemiah, we find the rebuilding of the temple, which is what Ezra's all about, and the rebuilding of the city and the people of God. And that's what Nehemiah is all about. And whenever you read Ezra and Nehemiah with this sort of prophetic hope, this hope that God is beginning to fulfill his promises, he's rebuilding the nation, the Messiah is coming. Well, when you remember that that is what the people in Nehemiah were thinking about, and you try and put yourself in their shoes, what you find in both Ezra and Nehemiah is a bit of an emotional roller coaster. You see, there are moments of great highs, really exciting moments, joy. The temple is being rebuilt. But there's also moments of great sadness and disappointment and shame. Of course, as Christians, we know that those promises made in the Old Testament about a restored kingdom, a restored temple, a new king, they find their fulfillment not in the bricks and mortar of Jerusalem, but in King Jesus and his people, the temple that he is building, his body, the church. Of course, the people in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, they, they didn't know this. And so throughout this book, we find highs and lows. Last week, we um, saw them rebuilding the wall. Oh, sorry, two weeks ago, we saw them begin to rebuild the wall. It was a real emotional high. Everyone was invo involved from the high priests all the way down to the servants' daughters. Everyone was involved. They were united in their task. They were humbly serving together. But then last week, some external opposition appeared. 
We saw that the Samaritans, the Jews, sort of half-cousins from the north, they came down. They started mocking the Israelites, threatening violence. There's highs, the walls being rebuilt, but there are lows as well because it's not going as smoothly as they thought. Uh, The book of Ezra captures this really, really well. This is from Ezra chapter 3. Listen to these words. Listen to the, the highs and lows. When the builder laid the foundations of the temple, the priests in their vestments and trumpets all, uh, all praised the Lord as prescribed by, by David. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love endures forever. All the people give a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Listen to this. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation being laid. No one could distinguish the sound of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. There's highs and lows throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. And here in chapter 5, we find another low. We find opposition arising, this time not from outsiders, not from the Samaritans, but from within the people of God themselves. The problem was no longer out there. The problem was in here. Of course, as Christians, this shouldn't surprise us one bit because every time God does something new with his people, problems arise. And the problems don't just come from out there, though they often do. The problems always arise from within the people of God. And this morning, we're going to think about what that problem was. We're going to think about how Nehemiah solved that problem. And we're going to think about why it was such a problem in the first place. But before we do any of that, I'm going to pray. And I'd love it if you prayed with me. Heavenly Father, we know that all scripture is breathed out by you. We ask that you would, through your word, by your Holy Spirit, teach us, correct us, and rebuke us in righteousness so that we might be equipped for every good work. And we ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. As I said, that internal problems arose from within the people of God when something new was happening, because that always happens. It happened here in Nehemiah, and I guess that Nehemiah himself would not have been surprised, because from the Garden of Eden onwards, God's people have rebelled and grumbled against him. They deny God's plan. They try to hinder God's mission because they don't want to do God's work in God's way. Let me say that again. They deny God's plan. They try to hinder his mission because they don't want to do God's work God's way. That's exactly what happened in Eden. God says to Adam and Eve, you are my image bearers. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Bring order, dominion to the earth, just like I have done in creating it. Eat from any tree you like, except that one. And what do they do? Well, Moses tells us they wanted to be like God, even though they were already his image bearers. So they take from the tree of knowledge, and sin and death enter the world. God's people 
not wanting to do things God's way, wanting to do things their way, not obeying God. Think of Abraham. He promised Abraham, he promised Sarah, that they would have a son through whom Abraham would be the father of many nations. What do Abraham and Sarah do? They take one of their servants, Hagar, marry her to Abraham, and have her give birth to a son instead. And all sorts of problems arise, problems we see playing out to this day. God's people wanting to do things their way, not God's way. Think of Exodus. God rescues them from Egypt, takes them through the Red Sea, gives them the law, leads them through the desert by a pillar of fire, feeds them miraculously from heaven. What do they do? They grumble. They say, oh, we missed the food back in Egypt. They missed the cucumbers, apparently. Uh, Interesting little detail that always makes me chuckle. God brings them to the edge of the promised land, and he says, go in, take the land, it's yours. What do God's people say? Oh, I don't think so. The guys down there are pretty tall. God's people always want to do things their way, not God's way. We could go on and on. There's judges, David and Bathsheba, Solomon and his wives. Again and again, God's people wanting to do things their way, not God's way. And that's not, it's not just an Old Testament problem either. Do you remember in Acts, Acts chapter 6, the church has just sprung to life. It's amazing. What do we find? Ananias and Sapphira pretending to be generous when keeping things for themselves. Think of the Corinthian church and all the problems going on there. The f- probably the first letter Paul writes is the most messed up group of pe- God's people you can imagine. Peter, the great apostle Peter, refusing to eat with the Gentiles. Time and time and time again, God's people wanting to do things their way and not God's way. What's going on in Nehemiah? What is the problem that has arisen, not from outside, but from within the people of God? Well, Nehemiah tells us they were remortgaging their land and their houses at extortionate rates two fellow Jews, hello, (laughs) and they were selling their children into slavery to fellow Jews. And they were doing this to feed themselves. There was a famine in the land. Now, that all sounds very strange to our ears, doesn't it? It sounds strange for a number of reasons. First of all, mortgages and remortgages are morally neutral in our world. It sounds very strange to us. Why is remortgaging your land such a terrible thing? It sounds strange to us because the idea of selling your children into slavery is just unthinkable to us. And let, let me reassure you right now, there's nothing inherently wrong with mortgages and remortgages. And yes, slavery is bad. Don't sell your children into slavery. But in order to understand why these two issues, mortgages especially, were such a problem within the people of God, we need to go back. We need to go back to the very start of the Bible. We need to go back to the book of Leviticus. Remember, there's two problems, extortionate loans and selling their children into slavery to other Jewish people. Listen to Leviticus 25. Oh, I think I've got it here, actually, so you can look it up yourself. Uh, Leviticus 25, verse 35. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. There's problem one. Amazingly, problem two is mentioned immediately after. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They're to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released. They will go back to their own clans, to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Amazing. In these how many verses? Ten verses or so. We find exactly what the people of Nehemiah were not supposed to be doing, and that's exactly what they were doing, what the rich Israelites were doing to the poor. The bankers were taking advantage of this regional famine, and as well as some of the disruption that the wall building probably caused, and they were extorting their fellow Israelites. Not only that, they were buying Israelite children and treating them like slaves. Now, at this point, it's important to note what the Old Testament does and doesn't say about slavery. The Old Testament did permit the Israelites to sell themselves into a form of slavery. But this slavery was for a limited time only. They had to be released, and they had to not be treating people like slaves. What would happen was you would find yourselves uh, unable to pay your workers, uh, to pay your mortgage. You'd be completely bankrupt. And so rather than go and live in the street, there's, remember there's no, there's no social uh, welfare or anything here. You would go to your wealthy neighbor and say, can you pay my loans off? If you pay up my loans off, my family and I will come and work for you. We'll work in the fields, we'll do your dishes, we'll do the laundry, whatever it is. And we'll do that for seven years if you pay off my debts. That's what slavery was in Old Testament Israel. Cared for, looked after members of the community who could no longer afford to feed themselves, to pay their debts. And they were cared for by wealthier people. And then they were released. When we hear the word slavery, we think of the terrible ways that Africans in particular were treated in the American colonies centuries ago. Maybe we think of the terrible forms of slavery that exist in the world today. L let me be really clear. God hates that form of slavery. Leviticus makes it absolutely clear. The Old Testament makes it absolutely clear that the only sort of slavery that should exist within God's people in the Old Testament was to be time-limited and compassionate. It was driven by compassion, by com it was driven by care for the poor, not as a means of lining your own pockets. Strange. Nowhere in the Bible do we find an endorsement of the awful types of slavery that come to our mind when we hear the word slavery. But what we find in Nehemiah is that the Israelites were doing the exact opposite of that. They were doing the exact opposite of what God commanded in Leviticus 25. They were, extort they were charging extortionate interest rates, and they were treating their, these poor people as slaves. The, the deep, deep problem wasn't just the terrible things they were doing. The underlying problem was that they had disobeyed God. They were not loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
They were not loving their neighbors as themselves. That is what the problem, the deep problem in Nehemiah was. How is that problem solved? Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. Exact opposite of what Leviticus says. So I called together a large meeting to deal with him and said, as far as possible, we've bought our fellow Jews back when they were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling them to your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending people money and grain, but we're not charging interest. Give back immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses, and all the interest you're charging them, 1% of money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath for what they had promised. Nehemiah is absolutely furious at the people of God. He's furious at their sin. And he confronts them about their sin. Then he reminds them of God's faithfulness to them. Then he calls on them to repent and to put things right. So he calls on them. He confronts them with their sin, reminds them of God's faithfulness, calls on them to repent, and puts things right. As I've been studying through Nehemiah for these sermon series, I've been really struck by the amount of really helpful patterns we've seen. In chapter 1, do you remember we saw Nehemiah's prayer pattern? I had them on the screen here, but uh, yeah, that's that's disappeared. Remember chapter 1, Nehemiah prays, he calls on God, he confesses his sin, he quotes God's promises to God, and then he requests, calls, confesses, quotes, requests. In Nehemiah 3, we saw that wonderful pattern of God's people working together. Everyone was involved, united in the task, performed with humility. You and I are not Israelites. We are not rebuilding the earthly city of God, but we are God's people, and we're called to build God's church by making disciples of the nations. And the New Testament tells us that these stories were written down for our instruction. So these these patterns are worth noting. And what we find here in chapter 5 is another one of these patterns. A pattern of repentance. Recounting of the sin. Remembering God's promise. Repenting of the sin. And then repaying what you owe. Recount, remember, repent, and repay. If you've been paying really close attention, you'll notice we've actually done three of those four things this morning. In fact, we do it nearly every Sunday here. We confess or we recount our sins to God. We remember his promise that he forgives everyone who truly and earnestly repents. And then we repent of our sin together. We don't do the repaying bit here. Perhaps, you know, maybe apologizing to the person you sinned against, putting something right. That's not something we can really do corporately. That's more of an individual thing. It takes a bit of time. But it is something we ought to do. In this instance, Nehemiah tells them, repay the interest that you have been taking. 
Nehemiah himself was leading by example. He was a wealthy man. He was lending people money, but he wasn't taking interest. Later in the chapter, we saw that he was given all this food by the governor, and he says, I'm not taking any of that. I'm going to give it to the poor instead. He was, Nehemiah was a godly man leading by example. And he calls on these people to repay what they owe. What are some of the ways we might need to repay what we owe to people? Repentance isn't just saying sorry and, you know, getting a clean slate from God. Repentance actually involves doing something. Remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector? He paid back what he had stolen. Maybe some of us are guilty of some financial sin. If you're a Christian, you ought to pay that back. All of us, I'm sure, are guilty of relational sin. Have we apologized? As I was reading this, I was reminded of Romans 12. We've been studying it in our growth groups. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Are we doing everything that we can to live at peace with people? Have we repaid what we owe These problems that had arisen in Nehemiah's day, most of us probably aren't remortgaging all of our our property at, at extortionate rates to buy grain. I hope none of us are selling our children into slavery. But these problems always arise within God's people. People not doing things God's way, doing things their own way. We shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves not doing things God's way. The great news of the gospel is there is forgiveness for that. And here in Nehemiah, we find a wonderful pattern of receiving that forgiveness, recounting our sin, remembering God's promise, repenting of that sin, and repaying what we owe. The very last thing I want us to notice before we close is why Nehemiah thought this was such a problem. Obviously, it was a problem uh, for the poor people, unable to pay their debts. That's a problem. Obviously, it was a problem for people who were hungry. Obviously, it was a problem for the people who were being treated as slaves. But notice what Nehemiah hones in on in verse 9. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Nehemiah is worried about the reproach of the Gentiles. He's worried about how the actions of the Jews reflect on God to the watching world. You can imagine the Gentiles traveling through Jerusalem and thinking to themselves as they look around, these people are supposed to be the people of God. But look at how they treat each other. The rich are bankrupting the poor. They're buying their next door neighbor's children and treating them like slaves. What sort of God must this God be if this is how his people behave? I wonder how many people in the streets around us have been put off by the actions of Christians. You see, God has always desired his people to be a light to the nations. 
That was the Old Testament plan, and it's the New Testament plan. We've got some stuff up here. This is very exciting. Uh, where do you see this? So this is obviously a map of the sort of uh, ancient world. This is just from Google Maps. It wasn't called Greece or Turkey at the time, but this, this is where Jerusalem is, obviously. And what would happen was, if you were from Egypt, if you were from what is now Baghdad, what was Babylon, uh, Assyria, Persia, if you were from what was called Asia, what is now Turkey, Greece, if you wanted to travel from any of these places to the others, Jerusalem was a sort of crossroads. Ships were expensive and very, very dangerous. So very often, rather, if you were going, if you were going from Cairo to you know, southern Turkey, you wouldn't have got a boat up, you would have traveled around the coast and you would have went through Jerusalem. If you're going from Babylon to Egypt, you didn't travel through the desert, because that was very dangerous. You'd have went around, down through Jerusalem, into Egypt. Same way. Jerusalem was the crossroads of the ancient world. That's why I think God chose this particular place to give to the people of Israel. And the idea was that as the nations traveled through Jerusalem, they would see what God's people were like. That's why they were given all those strange food and clothing laws. So they would stand out to be something different about them. That's why they were given God's law. Love your neighbor as yourself so that their lives would look different. Jerusalem is the crossroads of the ancient world. And Nehemiah is worried about the reproach of the Gentiles from the Israelites' sin. He's worried about the evangelistic impact of the Israelites' sin. Peter, the apostle, warns of the exact same thing in the New Testament. He calls on Christians to live such good lives among the pagans that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Jesus said, didn't he, that his people were supposed to be what? A light to the nations. But rather than setting up in a, in a little enclave and hoping that people come to us, Jesus says, go. He doesn't say stay in one place and wait for people to come to you. He says, go into the nations to make disciples of the nations. So the Christian model isn't come and see, it's go and tell. But the principle is the same. You're a light to the nations. The Christian's first priority is to tell people about Jesus. But as important is that their lives match up with the message they're proclaiming. In other words, the Christian must not only talk the talk, but they must walk the walk. Live such good lives among the pagans that they see your good deeds and glorify God. The Christian has the gospel. They know that forgiveness of sins is possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. They know that God has given them this new mind, this new life, this new life that should be blindingly obvious to the world around them. Just like the people of God in the Old Testament, so too the people of God in the New Testament. We're supposed to be a light to the nations, going out and telling people the good news of the God of Israel. And our lives ought to match up to that. And may we, as we seek to build the kingdom of God, not with bricks and mortar, but through souls being saved. May we, as we build God's kingdom, not bring reproach on the gospel. 
there will be problems that arise within the people of God. There will always be opposition within the people of God to the work of God, especially when something new begins. It was that way in the Old Testament. It's that way in the New Testament. Thank goodness we've got a book like Nehemiah. The Apostle Paul said these things happened to them, that's Old Testament saints, as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And like these Old Testament people, may we recount our sins to God, remember his promises, repent of our sins, and repay as we owe as we seek to be a light to the world like our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that these things have been written uh, for our instruction. Father, we thank you that we know that the end of the ages has come upon us, that it is our job to bring the gospel to the nations. Father, we acknowledge that the problems out there are not just problems out there, they're problems in here. We acknowledge that we so often want to do things our way and not your way. Father, give us the grace and the faith and the humility to repent of our sins and to put things right so that we can be effective witnesses so that those around us may see our good deeds, hear the gospel, and glorify God on the day that he visits. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.